morning. It's good to be back. It's weird to be back because it's so empty in here, which is necessary, of course. It was funny because I was thinking, wow, I'm going to be back in church, and I'm not used to being around people all the time now, and I need to make sure that, you know, I'm presentable because, you know, like everyone else, who needs to shave? So I made sure that I took the time to make sure I was groomed and trimmed and everything just for you. And as I was grabbing my mask this morning, I said, oh, right. So I did it for you, and you'll never know. So this past Wednesday, um, we had Veterans Day. And so even before we go any further in today's thought, I just want to be very clear and humbly say thank you to every person who has served in our country's military and has fought and bled and sacrificed so that I can stand here safe and free and be with you. Um, you're honored in my heart, and I, if I know the people of Boulder Church as well as I think I do, I think you're honored in their hearts as well. And we just want to say thank you for what you've done and what you've endured. Your actions mattered, and they still matter to us. And the life of every one of you is immeasurably valuable. So thank you. Now having said that, uh, today's message isn't specifically about veterans, but it is about something many veterans are intimately familiar with. And that is the consequences of being broken and no longer feeling whole. Now I kind of got dark real quick, and sorry about that. But in the course of my work, I've met a lot of veterans. Um, from World War II all the way to the current Middle East conflicts, I've had patients who fought in them all. Obviously not the same patient who fought in them all. That would be pretty spectacular. Um, but I've met people from all of these places, and their lives are fascinating, and they have these fascinating insights and perspectives that most of us don't have and can never have. There was this guy... Uh, who's a patient of mine, his name was Charles. And he served in Desert Storm and afterwards went on to become a prison guard. And after surviving all of these things and the career that he had, um, he wound up losing his sight to macular degeneration and he was blind. And before he died from cancer, I used to hang out in his room and we'd play chess together and um, you know, he'd let me beat him on a regular basis. And so let me clarify. I repeatedly beat a blind man at chess because I'm a good person. Now, in my defense, he told me that if I didn't play all out and went on to let him win, that he would harm me physically. So I did what I was told. And this is the interesting thing about him. He was the kind of guy that could actually pull it off. Um, he went and actually trained with a guy who developed the um, self-defense martial arts-based technique for blind people called One Touch and went on to be one of their instructors. So he probably wasn't going to win any MMA matches, but if you grabbed hold of him with hostile intent, it was going to go poorly for you. Um, he was a formidable man, and his disability did not control him. And I had another patient. His name is George. He fought in Vietnam. And after spending his time there, 
He was one of the, not as many as we would have liked, who came home unscathed. He went on to have a long career in engineering. He raised a family, raised kids, retired in his 50s, and spent the next 20-some years restoring military vehicles, jeeps, transports, tanks, um, even a World War II fighter jet. And he would take these vehicles, and he would go to different events and different parades and Veterans Day events, and he would display them and take people for rides in them. Um, one of his favorite things was just to fly the, uh, the fighter plane at Veterans Day events. That was like one of his favorite things to do. And one day, when he was 74, he woke up in the morning, got out of bed, and fell directly to the floor. Because for some reason, his left leg would no longer hold him up. And when he tried to get up off the floor, he realized that his left arm wasn't helping him either. And at some point in the night, he'd had a stroke. And he went from strong and vital and active to unable to be even able to stand in the blink of an eye. I remember walking into his room and seeing him sitting in a chair. He was trying to open a laptop with one hand, and if you've ever tried to open a laptop with one hand, you recognize that that is not always an easy thing to do. And he kept trying to get his other hand to come over, but it was incredibly painful, and he couldn't work his fingers, and he was just having a terrible time trying to do the things that he normally did. And so I sat down by him, and I asked him how his day was going, and, and how it was progressing, and he said, I think I'm getting stronger. He then stopped talking and immediately started weeping. And he spent the next 10, 15 minutes just crying. And when he was done, he said, now what will I do? Because he knew that the getting better was a lie. He knew he wasn't getting better, and he wasn't getting stronger and he knew that he probably never would. But the question that he asked, now what will I do, that wasn't his real question. What he was really asking is, who am I now? What is the point of my life now? Do I still matter? There are lots of people for many different reasons who get lumped into the category of disabled, or differently abled, either through circumstance or some quirk of birth? How do they see justice and mercy and humility and love and restoration? How does someone find restoration when their body can never be healed? Or what about justice? How do they find justice when there is no villain, no law has been broken, and no one has done anything wrong. How do you find justice then? Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and they see a man who was blind from birth. The man was, known, was a known beggar who was seen regularly begging in the streets. Now, this is a story that we all know, and we are all familiar with the miracle that follows. But, you know, there's one question that never gets asked. Why was this man begging in the streets? The obvious answer is because he was blind. But that isn't the reason. That's just an excuse. The reason he was begging is because no one would care for him. People knew who he was. They knew he was blind. He had a family, 
His parents are mentioned later in the story. And yet he's referred to as the blind beggar, the man who was begging because he was blind. But he didn't beg because he was blind. He begged because no one would care for him. Him being blind was simply an excuse used for people to disregard him and send him to the fringe of society. So when Jesus shows up with his disciples, the disciples prove that they see this man the same way everyone else does when they ask, who sinned that this man is blind, him or his parents? By asking this, they're declaring that this man has been formally cursed by God for some wrongdoing that he deserves this fate and is unworthy to be a regular part of society. They declare that this man has no value. Which is when Jesus says the thing they didn't expect, as Jesus tended to do. He tells them that no one sinned that this man was born blind. The first thing Jesus does before he does anything else is to declare to his disciples right in front of the man so he can hear it, that this man is not cursed, he has done nothing wrong. Jesus declared that God has not rejected him and that this man still has value and that this man never didn't have value. Then Jesus says that the man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed in the man. But what does that even mean? What are the works of God as they relate to humanity? When I read the Bible, it seems clear to me that God's primary task with humanity is to restore a broken people. But what does restoration even mean in this context? Are we simply talking about salvation? And while salvation is an important piece of restoration, that's not the context of this story. The very first words from Jesus make it clear that this man isn't perceived as lost by Jesus. To restore something means that you bring it back to the place it once had. You're bringing it back to a condition at which it has value. You restore watches, clocks, old cars. You're bringing them back to the condition at which their perceived value is what it should be. Now this work of God that Jesus is doing, <coughs> excuse me, choked on myself. Let me back up for a second. There's a problem with that thought though. Because Jesus' first words about the blind man were a, a rebuttal to the idea that the man had no value. The work of God that Jesus is doing in the man, the thing that Jesus restores, is the truth that this man's value was never lost in the first place. He's restoring the perception of the value, not just to his disciples, but more importantly, to the man himself. Jesus hasn't even healed the man yet, and he's already changed how everyone in this story understands the value of human life. The restoration of God isn't about restoring our value. The restoration of God is about restoring the truth that our value was never lost. The truth that we can accept the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's love and know that nothing can separate us from that love. And that no matter how broken we are, we never stopped having value. We never stopped having worth. Never once 
did our lives not matter? And this is absolutely related to restoration because once we realize just how valuable we are, it changes everything. And here is where I'm going to get into trouble. And since I historically don't care, we're going to do this anyway. Here it is. When people realize that there was never a time when they didn't have value, it suddenly exposes one of the greatest and most foundational lies of Christianity. I'm a Christian, I'm not anti-Christian, but we don't get everything right. And this is a lie that is still alive and well within Adventism also. So here we go, the last time I ever get to preach in Boulder. It's a lie that we tell ourselves and everyone we try to convert. It's a lie we tell people because we think it explains a salvific concept that we don't completely understand. Are you ready? Here it is. The lie is the belief that we are, or ever were, unworthy. Have you ever heard people say that? Oh, I am so unworthy of God's love. I am so unworthy of salvation. I am unworthy. End that sentence however you want to. And this is why you need to come and believe like us, so that you can be saved because you're unworthy. You heard that said before? Let me say it a different way. When we tell ourselves or anyone else that we need salvation because we are unworthy, we're telling a lie. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that there's no need for salvation. There's lots of possible potential reasons why a person's salvation is needed. Humanity rebelled. We keep making choices that are separate from love. We're imperfect. We make mistakes. Some of us make bad decisions. Some of us make evil decisions. But not a single one of those things means that we have no value, that we have no worth. Our ability to live well was diminished for reasons we could debate for eternity, but our value and worth was never diminished. According to Genesis, humanity was punished, but it was not devalued. Do you understand the difference there? Because that difference is important. Humanity became unperfect, imperfect, but we did not become unworthy. Jesus didn't choose to die because we weren't worth it. Is that what we believe? He chose to die because we were and are worth it. That is the very definition of what it means to be worthy. We can be judgmentally challenged and still be worthy. We can be a rebel from righteousness and still be worthy. We can make bad choices and still be worthy. We can make evil choices and still be worthy. We can be imperfect and broken and still be worthy. And accepting that this is true, that this is how our God and Savior sees us, is one of the most foundational pieces of being restored because when we can accept that no matter how horrible we have been or how badly we are broken, that we are loved and that we have value and that our lives still matter, we are changed. Something shifts inside of us and we see ourselves in a new light and we begin to see everyone else in that same new light. 
Always know that you are loved. And always know that your value and worth to your creator is unchanged. One of the reasons for this message is because the pastoral staff here wanted to explore the ideas of justice, mercy, and humility through the lens of those who are somehow disabled. How do they fit into this? How do they see these concepts and experience them? And the truth is, their perspective isn't all that different now than it was back at the time of Jesus. They're often relegated to the edge of society because of a physical state of being that most of them did not choose. Being made to believe that they aren't as valuable as they used to be. That they aren't as valuable as someone else. And it's very telling that when you talk to someone who was born with a profound physical disability, they have a slightly different experience. And while there's exceptions to this, generally they will tell you that when they were growing up, when they were young, they never realized that their limitation was a problem. Their reality was simply normal for them. They learned to do the same things other people did, more or less, just differently. It wasn't until other people told them they couldn't do things or be things that the question of their value entered their minds. Believing that our lives have limited value is not an intrinsic truth. It's a lie that we have to be taught. There's a woman by the name of Jen Bricker. Um, you can look her up online. She has Instagram. She's on the internets probably on the YouTubes. But she's an author, and she's an acrobat, and she also happens to have been born with no legs. From here down, nothing. And even though she will never have legs, she has not allowed this to limit her and who she is. She puts on aerial acrobatic shows and performances in places all over the country. She can do handstands on anything, anywhere, anytime. She has the kind of upper body and arm strength and definition that I would sell most of you to obtain. But more importantly, she has done more with her life than I have done with mine. And she spends her life intentionally trying to inspire other people because she understands the power of value. She understands that if you can be taught that your life doesn't have value, you can also be taught that it does. She understands that if you can show someone their life has value, it changes them. And she understands that the difference between a disabled person who overcomes and a disabled person who spirals into despair and depression and withers and dies is their sense of value. The moment they stop believing their life matters is the moment that they wither. But when they can believe again that their life does matter and that they do have value, and in fact, they never lost their value, that's the moment that they're restored. And that lesson may not be the most important, that lesson may be the most important part of the stories where Jesus healed people. Not the part where he healed them, but the part where he made them believe that they still mattered. But what happened to the ones Jesus didn't heal? What happens to the ones Jesus still 
doesn't heal. I'm like most of you, at some point in our life, we've taken our physical abilities for granted. Maybe not intentionally so, but especially when we're young, we just assume that we'll always heal, we will always get better. We're forever 18 in our heads, thinking that we're indestructible. And when I think back when I was young, I think of all the reckless things I did because it never occurred to me that anything I did would ever be permanent. I was in gymnastics for years, grade school, high school, first year of college. It was fun, it was also dangerous, but I had a good time. When I was a teenager, I was into bicycle stunts, and this is back, you know, late 80s, early 90s, when safety equipment was super important. Um, I would do bicycle stunts in a tank top, short shorts, because that was sexy, socks and tennis shoes, that was safety equipment. And this is a story that, I'm going to tell you this story as an example. And I've told this as children's stories before, and when you hear it, you're going to be like, you use that as a children's story. Yes, because I'm a good person. So, there was this moment during my teenage years when a couple friends, out, we all grew up together, we built launch ramps, jump ramps for our bikes. They were kind of like quarter pipes. Anybody skateboarded when you were younger? I know a couple of you probably did. They stood about this high. We built two of them. And they were a quarter of a circle on both sides. So if you jumped off of those, it launched you well into the air. And so we shoved them back to back. They were about, each ramp was about this deep after the ramp. So you had this much space to try to go over. And once we got confident enough with it, we thought, you know what, we need to separate them so we can go faster and get higher and do all these things. So we pushed them apart, but then we realized there was space in the middle. We realized that after one person didn't quite make it and wedged themselves between the ramps, survived it, and we kept going faster and higher and to see who could do the highest and jump the highest. And once we put them far enough apart, we were like, we really need to do something for safety purposes. <laughs> and so we put an eight-foot sheet of plywood between the two ramps you know, just hanging on enough that it didn't fall through, so if we landed on it, maybe it would stop us. And so there was three of us friends that grew up together, next door and across the street, and we'd known each other since birth, and so we were always competing to see who could do it better. I was the tallest, but I wasn't always, like, the fastest. And I was like, I'm going to win this time. I was not going to back down. I'm not going to blink. I'm going to do this, and they're going to be amazed. Now, we're drawing a crowd at this point, like literally in the streets of our neighborhood. We've got kids and, and even some adults and girls. There was girls there, and this was important. So I knew that if I was going to go higher, I needed to go faster. So we started going toward this ramp from the next house down and then the house after that. And finally, I was like, I know what I have to do. I have to start from three houses down so that I can go as fast as anyone has ever gone on a bicycle to jump a ramp. Because everyone knows that three houses down is how far you have to go to hit light speed before you hit a ramp. And so I'm going, and I hit this ramp, and I had this moment as I launch into the air, and there's a technique to this. When you go up a ramp and land, 
you have to tilt the bike over and come down nose first. So because the ramp is angled, you have to come down. If you try to come down flat, the bike just shoots out from under you. So you go up, you practice the technique, you nose it over, you come down, you see the ramp, and you're fine. But you're blind in the middle. And so there's this moment. I'm up in the air, and I know that I have done it. I have jumped higher than my friends, and time slows down in your head. And you're looking around, and you see the crowd that's there. And you have this time where you're going, you can look over and pose for the pictures as they're snapping them. Nobody had cameras. But in my head, they did. And you can wave to the girls and be like, we're going to catch up later. That didn't happen either. And so as I'm going, I know that I'm high, and I have set the all-time neighborhood record, and I nosed the bike over and realized my mistake. And my mistake was a lack of understanding of how physics works. Because to go faster and to go higher also means that you go farther. And when I nosed over and recognized that I had overjumped the ramp by about six feet, there was no ramp under me anymore, and I was coming down like a tactical missile. And when I hit the ground, my bike detonated like a grenade. My front tire just fell in half. My forks came apart in pieces. And the only thing that stopped my momentum was when I plowed through the handlebars into the concrete. And I hit the ground and just slid across the road. Fortunately, the concrete and my skin saved my bones from being ground apart, so that was nice. And I had rash from my ankles all the way up to my arms. Fortunately, I managed to not hit my head. I don't know how. Praise God. Um, and I didn't have any rash on my face, which was good because I was so very pretty as a kid. That didn't last. And I got up, cried for a while, went home and washed all the gravel out of my body, and then went about my day. Never once occurring to me that I could have harmed myself permanently, because as soon as I had my bike back together, I was doing it again. Now, you can say, kids, we do stuff. But the point is, there's lots of times when we just don't think about what we have, who we are, what we can lose, and what other people don't have. It wasn't too long after that, as I was getting out of high school, I got hit playing basketball, and it, I suffered a back injury, one that has plagued me my entire adult life. I limped through most of college. That's not how you want to experience college. And all throughout my adult life, I've had to fight this. Um, a few years ago, once I thought that I was in a stable place, I decided I was going to learn to snowboard. That was a mistake, because I'm apparently too old to learn to snowboard. And after I landed on my backside for an entire day, my back didn't feel good, and it's been a problem ever since. And the moment that I would feel good enough to do anything, I would go back to that mindset of, oh, yeah, I should just go out and do stuff. I went skiing with my nieces. That was a good day, right up until it wasn't. And doing something as innocuous as stopping, I hit a patch of ice, fell down, re-injured my back. They had to take me off the mountain. Have you ever been taken off a mountain when you're skiing? That is the most humiliating experience, because they throw you on the back of a trailer that's strapped to a skier. And my particular skier was about this tall, and she weighed about 100 pounds. And she's just got a trailer strapped to her back. And I'm trying not to fall off. And she's skiing me down a mountain like it's nothing. 
she's a superhero. But it was humiliating. And I've had problems and pain ever since. And this is where all this matters, because it's not about my experience. This is just an example, because I know that many of you have had it worse than me. Some of you have injuries that I don't have. Many of you suffer from things that I don't know about in ways that I don't. But I've lived with pain since I was 19. I'm 46, so you do the math on that. But how many people have had it worse? Now, I have prayed and begged God for healing almost every day of my life since then. And I, do, I remain still injured. I am not better. And I know that some of you who have lived with injuries are the same way. How many times have you prayed and begged that it would all be better and it's not? How much more people who are so much more broken than us, paraplegic, quadriplegic, the people who lost limbs, the people who came back from war and were never the same, and they prayed and they begged and nothing changed. What do we do with that? I had a patient of mine named Evan. I met him when I was doing rounds in the ICU. He was 27 years old. He was also a quadriplegic. And he'd been in a car accident and now could do little more than move his eyes, talk, and maybe on a good day, move his head just a little bit. And he was angry all the time. So angry that the people who loved him and cared for him, his family, struggled to know how to help him and how to be there for him. And he'd been in a romantic relationship that ended because of the permanence of his injuries. And he believed that God wasn't listening to his prayers because God hadn't healed him and God wouldn't let him die. And he just wanted it to all be over. But he didn't even have the ability to end his own life. Those are the conversations that he had with me. And as we were talking, I remember sitting in his room, and his situation reminded me of an old Metallica song. Anybody listen to Metallica back in the day, or still? I don't know. Um, I say old because anything from the 80s is apparently old now, and that's disturbing. Um, but the name of the song is called One, and it's from their album, And Justice for All, which was unintentionally appropriate for this. Uh, and the song is basically the story of a soldier so terribly injured in war that he was very much like Evan. And as I talked with him, those lyrics came through my mind, and, and I want to read part of those lyrics to you now. They kind of give you a sense of that experience. <clears throat> and they go like this. Fed through a tube that sticks in me. Just like a wartime novelty. Tied to machines that make me be. Cut this life off from me. Hold my breath as I wish for death. Oh God, wake me. Now the world is gone. And I'm just one. Oh, God, help me. Hold my breath as I wish for death. Oh, please, God, help me. Darkness imprisoning me. All that I see. Absolute horror. I cannot live. I cannot die. Trapped in myself. My body, my holding cell. A landmine has taken my sight, taken my speech, taken my hearing. 
taken my arms, my legs, and my soul, left me with life in hell. This is the experience that we can't understand. That we can never understand until it's yours. And so when we talk about disabilities and we talk about hope and we talk about what is God doing for them and can they have healing and when they don't have it and this is their reality, what do we tell them? Not everybody broken by circumstance ends up with a miracle from Jesus. Jesus doesn't just show up the way we want, when we want, how we want. It doesn't always, and it doesn't even usually happen that way. And as Christians, we need to accept that that is true. Giving the platitude that God will just take care of it, maybe one day in the next life, but maybe not in this one, and that still matters. Perhaps this is where God's pleading for us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly comes into play. Jesus may not just show up, but I'm here. Jesus and angels may not materialize and bring miraculous healing, but you're there. And if we are the disciples of the healer, the one who declared there was value in the broken before he unbroke them, then perhaps we should do the same. In a society that doesn't value the disabled and unjustly brushes them aside, maybe we can remind them that they never stopped having value, and that their lives and worth are not defined by the number of legs that still work or the number of eyes that still see. Maybe we can demonstrate the merciful love that shows the quadriplegic that she can still have a place in society that has brushed her away. Maybe we can declare their value by demonstrating through humility that we who can still use our bodies are not more valuable than those who cannot. Because we don't have more worth than those who went to war whole and came home not. We're not more valuable than those who were born with giant parts of their bodies missing. And we're not better than those who can only lay in a bed, able only to move their eyes. You're not defined by your legs or hands or eyes or spine. You're not defined by what works and what doesn't work in your body. Your worth is not your ability to walk or speak or see or hear. And for you who are broken, I don't know whether you will ever do those things again. And I could give you more examples of disabled people who found ways to overcome, but I'm not going to do that because this isn't about them. It's about you. Those other people know they have value, and by knowing that, they were restored. And once they were restored, they overcame but it's not about what they've done, it's about what you will do. Can you accept that your value has never changed and that you've always had it? Can you accept that you still matter?
can you accept that you can be restored? That you can feel whole again in your heart and spirit, even if not in your body. Because you do still matter. And you can find that restoration, but only if you want to. Jesus has never stopped declaring your value, but only you can accept that that is true. He knows that you still matter, but the question is, do you?